Lord Sunday. Well, welcome here. I am so glad that you have made it through this weather. It was quite windy and cold this morning, or at least through the night. And as I was driving out here, I thought, I hope people show up. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of our worship time and our experience of coming together. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to start today by asking this question. What is the Bible? What is the Bible? And I think when I ask this question, many of you have an image, an idea, a thought that pops up. All of us have some kind of intuition or experience with the Bible. Some of us have heard about it, some of us have studied it, some of us have heard people talk about it. And so when I say the question, what is the Bible, we all have something that jumps out at us. We all have something that we kind of wrestle with or imagine or think about. And I want to point out the thoughts that jump out at you when I ask that question are important things to pay attention to. For example, if your thought is kind of negative, pay attention to that. And if your thought is positive, pay attention to that. Or if your thought is whatever it is in between, whatever the emotion that you're experiencing, pay attention to that. We're going to explore this question and we're going to look at it seriously through the next few weeks. Now, when I heard this question, what is the Bible, I was kind of a different place. I was flying somewhere a couple of years ago and I was at the airport and I have this habit, if I'm flying somewhere, I have to get to the airport very early. So I'm like hours and hours there early. And so then, of course, as I go through all the things that you have to go, take all your clothes off, go through the thing, put it all back on. As you go through that whole experience, it's kind of baptismal, actually, isn't it? It changes you. Um, and you go through this, and you get on the other side, and I had lots of time to kill. I had lots of time to just wander around, and I love people watching, which is maybe kind of weird, but I love observing people and how they're interacting with one another. And I was in the, those little kiosks that sell candy and magazines and books and all that kind of stuff and really fancy shirts. Uh, so I was in there and I was looking around uh, at the books and I heard somebody say, what is the Bible? And it piqued my interest. And I kind of looked over and I saw a couple of people looking at the National Geographic. It was a National Geographic that came out a couple of years ago and it was the question that National Geographic proposed was the search for the sacred texts. And I was really interested. I wanted to know what, what these two people were going to say about that. Because all of us have some ideas about the Bible. No matter how small or how large, we all come with some preconceived idea about the Bible. Now, I have spent most of my life, uh, just happened to be that way, felt called into this life of studying the Bible, of reading about it, of going to school, learning and hearing people talk about the Bible, reading the Bible, reading about the Bible, reading what people have said about the Bible, and all the diverse voices that come with it. So that's been part of my life. So when I heard somebody say that question, it really piqued my interest. Now today I'm starting this new series called The Bible. And uh, we're just coming out of a series called Come and See. So if you've missed it, if you're new with us, I'd encourage you to check it out because I feel like it builds into this series. In the last series, we talked about the invitational culture, the inviting a friend into something that could change their life forever. And that something was the way of Jesus. And we learned through that series that as, we, that as we grow, as we study, as we learn, our worldviews, our faith is shaped and it grows and becomes more mature. And so as we enter this series, the Bible, I want us to investigate what we know about it and how we've come to it. So whether you're a seasoned reader of the Bible or whether you're 
just a newbie to it or whether you're just new to church to begin with, welcome here. But I want to suggest that for us here in Canada, many of us know some stories of the Bible, right? Like we have some ideas of David and Goliath, you know, the underdog story, or maybe Samson, the strong guy. Wasn't he the strong guy? You know, you hear those kind of things. Or maybe even like the golden rule, right? Like do unto others as they would have, un- as, as you would have them do unto you. Like we have these kind of ideas that come from the Bible. But very few of us know the story of the Bible. That is how we got the Bible to begin with. And understanding how we got the Bible is almost, I want to suggest, as important as knowing what's in the Bible. Because as we're going to see, the backstory sheds enormous light to the story. I believe this is an extraordinary topic, and it's important, and it's an amazing story. Because if you don't know the story of the Bible, it's easy to discount the stories in the Bible. In fact, some of you may have walked away from faith. Or maybe you know somebody, a friend, a neighbor, a colleague, a family member, who had walked away from their faith because they read something in the Bible and it didn't connect to their worldview or didn't make sense to where they were today in their life. And so they walked away from their faith. And maybe some of you in this room, you're just maybe coming back and checking things out and you're thinking, I'm not even sure I believe this stuff, so it's interesting he's talking about the Bible. And it's understandable because if you don't know the story of the Bible and how we got it, it's very difficult to continue to embrace some of the stories in the Bible. And the problem is, and we'll talk about this for the next few weeks, is that the way that we got our Bibles is not the way that the world initially got the Bible. By the time you got the Bible, it kind of looked like this, like my Bible here. It had maybe a uh, a leather black uh, cover, maybe gold lettering, maybe gold uh, sides, and it had chapters and verses, and it had cross-references, and it had footnotes, and uh, some of them have concordances, some of them have notes in them that you can kind of follow along and explain the verses. And this is how some of us, or a lot of us, have received the Bible if we had one. Or maybe you stayed in the hotel room and you opened that nightstand and you saw the Gideon Bible and you said, oh, okay, there's a Gideon Bible. What's this? A lot of us come to the Bible in its final product. But that's not how the world initially got the Bible. And the story of how the Bible, how the world got the Bible is extraordinary and it sheds light on the stories in the Bible. So, regardless of where you're coming from, what happens is this, that all of us carry some perspective on the Bible. Now for some of us, the Bible, if it says it, that's it. It said it, so I have to do it. This is its very nice, clean box, and it said it, so it must be it. That settles it. But for many others of us, who maybe weren't raised with the Bible, or maybe weren't raised in the church, it doesn't quite settle it. It's not quite that simple. And some way along the way, somebody else pointed out something in the Bible that made you go, wait a minute, I haven't heard this before. And wait a minute, I don't know if I understand this. Because this doesn't seem like the way of Jesus. Or this doesn't seem like the God of love. And so what, I, what do I do with this part of the Bible that wasn't taught to me in Sunday school? Or maybe your parents skipped over it. Or maybe they just avoided it and pretended it wasn't there. And then when it was pointed out to you, it was difficult to make sense of it and the world that you live in. And, if, and you're an honest person, you couldn't just look the other way and pretend it's not there. So perhaps because of what you discovered in the Bible, it made you question the Bible. It made you question your faith. 
It made you question, how does this worldview connect with my worldview today? So this is a, a big topic that I want to unpack over the next few weeks. This is the part that I want to engage with. And I'm not even sure if the few weeks is enough to engage with this topic. There's people that spend their lives writing, not just on the whole Bible, but on the book of the Bible, maybe on the chapter of the Bible, maybe on the verse of the Bible. So I'm not going to do it justice. But I'm going to do my best to try to unpack it. So here's some things that we know. The Bible as we know it today is made up of many authors over many centuries. It has its roots in ancient Israel. The Bible is also the work of many editors who stitch together oral histories, poetry, songs, sayings, as well as stories, history, legal narratives in a meaningful, powerful, and sophisticated way. The first part of the Bible is what we call the Old Testament. Now, we call it that as Christians. To the Jewish people, it is just their scripture. The second part of the Bible, which is the New Testament, is what we as Christians call the New Testament. The second part of the Bible is about Jesus. That's the part of our beliefs that essentially separate us from Judaism and was never actually intended to be part of the Jewish scriptures at all. In the beginning, the Gospels were supposed to explain who Jesus is, what he had done, and what it means. It was a story of the way that changed the world. And one of these accounts that I want to start with today about Jesus wasn't even written by a Jewish person. It was written by a Greek doctor named Luke. And Luke actually spent the time necessary to document the events of the life of Jesus and so, since probably most of us connect Jesus with the Bible, we're going to start in the second part of the Bible today, and we're going to look and learn how we got what we have today from Luke's scroll to bounded books to a leather-bound Bible to your version app. Luke writes and begins his story writing to Theophilus. Now, it seems that Theophilus could have been a wealthy friend who, like many in, in the region of the world, had heard enough stories about Jesus and had met enough eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and his miracles, and he had put his faith in Jesus. So just starting there, isn't that remarkable? Somebody had met enough eyewitnesses who saw the work, the life of Jesus, that it was enough for him to put his trust into Jesus. But Theophilus wanted an orderly account of how things, how the whole thing transpired, how it all came together, the whole, the whole book. What is, tell me everything. Don't miss any parts. Don't miss any, don't, don't just go straight to the resurrection. Don't just go to the cross. Tell me this whole story. God came into this world? Like, you mean, like from heaven, like how did this happen? He wanted the whole story. So he had Luke begin record an interview and, and talk to people so he could write Theophilus this story. Now, I just want to have a little caveat because Theophilus means beloved one. So some people believe it maybe wasn't a specific person. Maybe this is to the whole church. Maybe it was to the, all the people that were beginning to encounter God in a special way. And so Luke is writing to all of us in that sense. Whichever it is, we know, that, we know it today as the Gospel of Luke. And Luke begins to record the whole story. But I'm not going to call it the Gospel of Luke yet, because it wasn't the Gospel yet. It was simply a Greek doctor in the first century who's documenting to the best of his ability the life and the work and the words 
of Jesus. So you can join me in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. You can join on your app or you can have on a screen or if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Luke. And Luke starts like this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very, from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So here's how he begins the document. Many have undertaken to draw up an account or document things that have been fulfilled or the things that happened among us. Something had happened that was worthwhile documenting. And it's really interesting to note that Luke says, I'm not the only one trying to document this. I'm not the only one trying to put this story down, uh, record these events. These things actually have happened and other people are recording this. And right off the bat, we should really realize here that this is very unusual. There are not many cases, historically speaking, in the first century, that multiple written accounts of the same event or series of events are recorded. There are some but not very many. This is unusual. In ancient times, we have virtually no multiple written accounts of the same event. The life of Jesus, in some way, stands out all by itself in that regard. So Luke goes on, verse 3. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, going back to the beginning of, of the, Jesus' life, I too, along with a lot of other people, decide to write this orderly account, Most Excellent Theophilus. And this title, by the way, the most excellent Theophilus, is what gives us an idea that Theophilus might have been an important person. It might not have been a generalized uh, saying to the whole church. Uh, he, he's likely a merchant or a landowner who is now a follower of Jesus. And so Luke says, I'm going to spend the time necessary to put together an orderly account. Now, this is really important, what I'm going to say next. When Luke was writing this document... Luke was not writing the Bible. Luke had no idea this would ever exist. That's kind of hard to hear, right? Especially if we're seasoned Bible readers. He's documenting the events of Jesus' life for Theophilus so he would have an orderly account. And he's one of many because this event was extraordinary. Luke probably could not fathom that 2,000 years later, there'd be something that was included in the Bible. Luke is simply creating an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And because the way he did this tells us why and how the story of the Bible began. And when Jesus was crucified... And there are other extra-biblical literature that tells us this, that Jesus was a historical person, that Jesus was actually crucified or put to death under Roman Empire. Nobody disputes that. It's recorded by other historians. But in the first uh, century, when Jesus' followers recognized that Jesus had been put to death by Rome, 
for most of them, it was game over. There was going to be no story and no happy ending. Those of you who are seasoned Bible readers will remember that his closest friends denied, ran away, wept in confusion when he was crucified and died. And sometimes those of us that have grown up with the Bible or maybe more seasoned in it will skip over that part because we want to get to the ending. We want to get to the good part of the story. But it's a mistake to do that because Luke is documenting something fabulous that happened in the first century. In, his, in this story, he tells us that a man named Joseph Arimathea, a part of the Jewish Supreme Court, and a man named Nicodemus, two people that everybody in the region would have known, so he names them specifically so they could go and ask them because people would have known them, that these two men go to the cross and took Jesus' body down. Not because they believed he was the savior of the world, but because they had respect for him and, he saw, and they saw that he was dead. And they were disappointed. And they wanted to do the right thing. And they wanted to give him a proper burial. Luke is documenting what is happening, how people are feeling. It'd be a mistake to skip over this part. That For many, this was it. Luke, uh, join me in Luke 23, starting verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and actions, that is to crucify Jesus. And he came from Judea, uh, Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was waiting for, the, for God to come back. He was waiting for God to set things right. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in the tomb. Tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. And it was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they, re but they rested on the Sabbath and obedient to the commandment obedience to the Jewish law. Look at the careful details Luke is giving us. He gives us all this detail because he's a doctor. He's detail-oriented. You know those kind of people, right? I have uh, one or two in my house that just outline everything. Don't guess who it is. They know who they are. And they detail every little part, and they can remember everything. And when they're telling a story, it's every little vivid detail. I'm not like that. It's not me, by the way. I just like the big, broad story, and here's the ending. But they're very detailed. And this is what Luke is doing. He's gifted this way. He's so detail-oriented, and he's trying to write an orderly account, and he doesn't want us to miss anything. Did you notice this part? The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph of Arimathea and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. And then these women went home and prepared spices and perfumes. Why? Why is Luke putting this in there? Because they were going to come back and re-embalm his body. They were going to prepare Jesus with the honor of burying him properly. He was dead. Luke is very careful not to miss any details. He's, he's drawing our attention with this careful detail that we sometimes skip over because we want to get to the good part. But this is the good part. And he says, look, look how carefully. This is what people thought 
And this is why I'm documenting this. Do not miss this. There's a whole bunch of people that are heartbroken and disillusioned. And there are no Christians at this point. There are no Jesus followers. Most ran away. There's no church. And there is no hope. They're just brokenhearted women, disillusioned disciples that are scared for their own lives. There's Rome, the eternal city, and clearly the gods of, of the Romans had won again. And there's the temple and the leaders of the temple, and it's clear that they have won again. And between Rome and temple, the Jesus movement, the way of Jesus, had been crushed out of existence. And if it had ended there, there would be no the Bible. And there would be no Christians. And there would be no church. Luke documents the life of Jesus because the story of Jesus didn't end on the Roman cross. If the story had ended there, there would be no story. Luke tells us the reason that he was a follower of Jesus. The reason is, the reason is that Jesus is alive. And once he came back to life, his followers came out of hiding and they went to Jerusalem and they were no longer scared because they saw that the world changed forever. And they began to understand what Jesus was leading them to and they began to understand what he was teaching them. And they came to a place where they saw that God was far different but far better than they ever imagined. And they went to the same streets and they went into the city and they faced the men who were responsible for killing Jesus. And they faced him in the, they looked in their face and they gave sermons and messages right back at them, right at the people who would have killed them and who had arrested Jesus. And they spoke to them and they were beaten for it and imprisoned for it. And Luke records this and we can read this in the, in the book of Acts chapter 2 verse 32. And this part is, by the way, Acts and Luke were actually one book. We separated it so it'd be easier to remember and, and we numbered and chaptered everything but this is also luke writing he says and this is what peter who now sees caiaphas who now goes to the people who hated jesus and peter looks him in the eye and tells him this that god has raised this jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it luke is so careful writing this down that he doesn't want us to miss that the world thought it was over that his disciples thought it was over that the women that loved him were ready to embalm his body. But they saw him alive and they were no longer afraid. And so the Jesus movement, the church, was birthed. The way of Jesus was the beginning. Luke goes on to document what happens for the next 30 years following the resurrection. He documents it in the book, in the second part of the New Testament that I just said earlier, the book we call Acts, which was actually part of Luke before, uh, but it's called Acts because it's Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Church or Acts of the Spirit of God who began to fill people in a new way. And Luke knew Peter, and he interacts with Peter, and there are conversations between Luke and Peter, and he documents them. And Luke knew John, and there are conversations between Luke and John. And there's conversation between Luke and James, the brother of Jesus. And these, mean, uh, these men knew each other. And Luke travels with Apostle Paul all around the known world, all around the Mediterranean, and they begin planting churches. And he documents the rise of the Gentile church. Gentile, by the way, is just anybody who's not Jewish. And as the church became more and more Gentile and less and less Jewish, 
Luke is documenting it all along the way. And this movement, this movement called the church will ultimately shape Western civilization. In fact, most historians, secular or not, all acknowledge that Christianity shaped and greatly impacted all of the Western civilization for the better. Science expanded because of the growth of Christianity. Science grew because Christians began to see a God of order and a universe that had to make sense. Hospitals rose up, not just for the military or for the kings or for the nobles, but for those that are least in society. Women were given dignity because Jesus said, all people are made in the image of God. And here's the cool thing. The thing that you need to know, Luke admits this right up front. Hey, he says, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one trying to record and document all of this, what happened. Many, many have undertaken to draw up the account of the things that have been fulfilled or the things that are happening amongst us. And the question we should all wrestle to the ground, and if you've walked away from faith or you've known somebody who's walked away from faith or from Christianity, and I understand it, and if, look, and I know if I've heard your story and you would tell me why you walked away, I would probably say, how could I blame you? But here's something you need to wrestle to the ground because I think you should come back. Why so many? Why so many people recorded the events of Jesus? That would have been so unusual. It would have been so unusual for multiple people to cover these events in detail. It was expensive to write. Most people were illiterate anyways. Why would Luke, why would others feel compelled to document the events that happened in the first century surrounding the city of Jerusalem? And the answer is undeniable because something extraordinary happened. Not something extraordinary was written. Something extraordinary happened. Something had to be preserved. Because after all, Peter and the followers of Jesus, they weren't getting any younger and their lives were threatened constantly. So several of them sat down and dictated and wrote their accounts and their experiences with Jesus. In fact, Peter, the apostle Peter, dictated his account to a young man, a young Greek named John Mark. And we know this from, the, uh, from a second century writer named Papias who tells us that the gospel of Mark came from the lips of Peter and Peter probably was illiterate, so consequently he sat down with another Greek and he gave him his story, and which we now call the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark, it's really bottom line, it's, it's short, and it's really event-driven. And John Mark traveled with Apostle Paul, and he knew Luke, and he was friends with Luke, so he documented what was written in the 50s, not 1950s, literally 50s, just about 20 years after the resurrection, and Luke said several people sat down to document this extraordinary event, and Matthew was another one of them. We call it the Gospel of Matthew. But before it was called the Gospel, it was simply a document. A document addressing the first century Jews to say, Trust me, Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. And he uses the Old Testament. He leverages the Old Testament. He looks at it and sees how things that were foretold were unfolding in the life and the work and the teachings of Jesus. And he says, look at all the prophets, look at all the law, and look at all the things that were pointed to, to the heart of the matter. And Jesus is certainly the Messiah because he has fulfilled 
these things. The church fathers, that's what we call the group of people that came after the disciples in the late century, second century, uh, or sorry, came in the in late first century and then in the second century. Church fathers indicated that there was an actual Hebrew copy, a Hebrew version of the book of Matthews. And Matthew was probably written in Hebrew, which makes sense. It was written to the Jewish people to tell them that Jesus is king, that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And then it was translated into Greek. And the version we have today comes from Greek. Because Greek was the language of the Eastern Empire. And this was not simply a message for Jewish people. This was not simply a message for some tribe. This was a message for the whole world. And so there's Luke. There's John Mark. There's Mark. There's Matthew. And then there's the Gospel of John. John decided that he too needed to get out of him the story that he experienced with Jesus. And so we might say, John, why bother? Others already have been written. And regardless of where you, you are in your faith today here, and regardless of what your church experience has been, I hope you lock into what John is doing in the first century. John is writing a literary genius account by documenting the narrative that, that, that mirrors the narrative of the First Testament, the Old Testament, that mirrors it through the lens of Jesus. Because he reminds us that Jesus is the I am. The name we learn for God in the Old Testament. The name that Moses hears in the burning bush. Those of you that are familiar with that story. And is, that is why when you go through the Gospel of John, there are so many I am statements. And John is looking into this and he's saying Jesus is who he is because he's fulfilled who he is. And we can know that because we see that in the first revelation of God. And these weren't done in secret. And, and these were done in public by disciples. He's not talking about just the 12. He says hundreds of people have observed this and have followed Jesus from the banks of the Jordan River, right through the crucifixion, and then showed up after the resurrection. And he says there are many other things that Jesus did that are not recorded in this book. And this is something really important to say when he says in this book, he's not talking about the book as we know it. He's talking in his own document, in his own gospel, in his own writing. There's many other things that have been done that are not referenced here. But because I have experienced Jesus and because I have seen him fulfill and do miraculous signs, because I have seen him do what he did and because he came into the resurrected life, I have to record this. And as he faced the end of his life, as he faced what was coming to be his mortality, his death, he said, I want the future generations to know what I experienced with my hands, with my eyes, with my ears, with my whole body. And he's thinking, I want the future generations to know what I saw, what changed my life, and what changed the worldview. What gives me hope when the world around me seems to be absolutely hopeless, when all I see is suffering, where all I see is death, I want people to know that there's a hope in this world. So I want to record this, even though others are recording, because this is something I experienced. And he writes in John chapter 20, verse 31, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John, the eyewitness, someone who spent time with Jesus, says this, 
these things that I've written in this gospel, these things that are written that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is in fact who he says he is. Because we were all scared when he was in the tomb and we all ran away and some of us denied him and we thought it was over and it was done. But when we saw him alive, we feared no longer and we had to enter the streets and we had to proclaim and we had to document because we were no longer afraid. And at the end of the first century, there are thousands and thousands of Christians, Jewish Christians, Greek Christians, Roman Christians, Christians in other parts of the world. At the end of the first century, there are thousands of Christians and there are um, dozens and hundreds of little documents that are being rewritten very carefully, not to misspell, not to miss a word or a line or a letter. As they look at these documents, they were handed down from Luke, from Matthew, from Mark, from John. And some people have the whole gospel, some people have parts of it, some people have three gospels or two, and there's these collections. And you can imagine if you're a first century Jewish follower or second, Jewish, uh, second century Jesus follower, can you imagine how valuable these documents would have been? You would have had your parents or grandparents tell you the stories, what they witnessed, this miracle that they saw and the miracles that they observed. And now somebody would come in and say, these are the guys that were actually with him. Look what they wrote. The value this would have had. Can you imagine how amazing this would have been to say, you've heard Peter say this, but look, look, Luke actually writes it down. Twenty plus years before there was ever a Bible as we know it, there were these pressure, precious extraordinary documents that gave the first, the second, and the third century Christians a picture of details, quotes from their master and their savior, Jesus. And they were sophisticately written, and they were powerful, and they were careful. But they could not hold it to themselves because it changed the world and it changed them. And from the very beginning, these documents were considered valuable, reliable. From the very beginning, they were considered sacred and even inspired. And it is no surprise that very quickly, these four documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were considered sacred scriptures. Now, isn't that amazing? Now, to catch you up, the empire, the Roman Empire, was very suspicious of Christians. And the reason the Romans were suspicious of Christians was not because they believed in Jesus. Romans could care less. They believed in many gods. But Rome was also very um, um, superstitious. And as long as you worshiped their gods and your God and you gave money to Caesar and you gave, uh, you gave alms to their gods, as long as you did all these things to keep the gods happy, didn't matter if you're barbarian, didn't matter if you're Greek, as long as you did all these things, then you're okay because things will work out. But that was the problem for Christians because Christians wouldn't do that. They only acknowledged Jesus as Lord and not Caesar. They only acknowledged Jesus as God and not all the other gods. And because Romans were superstitious people, when something went bad in the empire, when there was a, a flood or a famine, when something would go wrong, they would look at Christians and say, this must be why this is happening. The gods aren't happy because these people aren't bowing down to our gods. And so we must destroy them. There was a late 2nd, 3rd century Christian leader named Tertullian and he wrote this famous statement that survived antiquity. And he gives us a glimpse of what Christians were up against in the 2nd and 3rd century. And he wrote this. 
said, if the Tiber River, river floods the city or the Nile refuses to rise and water the crops or if the skies withhold its rain or if there's an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lions. That is, Christians were blamed for everything just about that went bad in the empire. And the point was to keep the gods happy at all costs. And the gods demonstrated their pleasure or displeasure through the wonders of nature, through the rains, the floods, the rivers, and the victory in war. But perhaps worst of all, all Christian literature, all Christian literature was to be turned in and was to be burned. And if you were caught with Christian literature, if you were caught with these precious documents, you could lose your life and you would watch your wife and your daughter and your son lose their life in order to preserve these documents. And hundreds and hundreds of Christians risked their lives protecting the important fragments of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were so precious in their story of the way that they risked their lives so they could preserve them. And by the way, this happens today in other parts of the world. And the reason that those valuable documents survived the third and the early fourth century is because of their confidence that these documents told the truth about something that had happened on planet Earth in the first century when God showed up in a person of Jesus Christ and they would rather die than give up these sacred documents. Even during that persecution, Christianity continued to spread. And then the political change brought about reform and an easing of hostilities. And by the year 324, Constantine the Great became the undisputed emperor of both sides of the empire. And he canceled those edicts, returned property to the church, allowed Christians to worship freely. And Christianity, as you know it, became the preferred religion of the empire. And then, only then, for the first time, for the first time ever, the Christian scholars were able to work in the open, work uh, in daylight, and gather together this, these precious, inspired documents. And they could work in public together, collecting them and bundling them and putting them together in what we now call the New Testament. And the stage was set for assembling the very first Tabiblia, the Bible, and there's so much more to this story that we will pick up next week in part two of the Bible. But what I want you to note, what I want you to take off, is that there was evidence of something that happened, that people risked their lives and risked their energies to make sure it was recorded, that we would not miss. That we would not miss something significant that gave people life and hope in, in the face of struggles, in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution. Would you join us in the next few weeks and invite your friends as we investigate the Bible, as we investigate the story that brings us the stories? Would you stand and pray with me? Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that we're able to know you. We thank you that we're able to know you, not just know about you, but because of the precious and delicate and sophisticated work of those who saw and experienced you, we can know you and not just about you. So God, go with us from here. Help us to have uh, 
quizzical minds, that we ask questions, that we wrestle with what we heard. We thank you for your inspired word. We thank you for these documents. Be with us as we go from here. We praise in your name. Amen. If anything has struck a chord with you, we're going to have a team up front. Please come up, ask some questions. They can pray with you. Other than that, invite a friend. We'll see you next week.